0: And welcome to a special festive edition of Looks Unfamiliar all about... Well, you might have recognised that piece of music just there as the opening titles of the BBC's 1984 adaptation of John Macefield's The Box of Delights. And you might have thought to yourself, hang on, isn't that a little too well known for looks unfamiliar? Well, yes it is, but only on face value. Because the problem with The Box of Delights, really, is that everyone talks about it in terms of it being a television classic and how it's regarded now. And not about how it was regarded at the time it was broadcast, when... Well, you can't really say it was just another children's BBC programme, as it was heavily hyped and heavily acclaimed even at the time. But it was just one of a long series of fantasy and sci-fi serials that were broadcast in more or less the same slot in the run up to Christmas. And it did really just come and go. And for a long time... It was very much seen as something that everyone had moved on from, and in fact at one point it was very hard to get hold of. Which is where our guest for this special edition comes in. I see someone who did spend a long time trying to get hold of it, and it's writer Stephen O'Brien. So Stephen, take us back to 1984. What do you remember about first watching the Box of Delights?
1: Well, actually, I think I'll go back a little bit further, actually, because I'm sure you'll remember, certainly on BBC One and Children's BBC, there was a lot of excitement and anticipation in the run-up to the Box of Delights being broadcast. There was a lot of talk, and I seem to recall there's some coverage in the press as well around this £1 blockbusting TV series for Christmas 1984. So I think certainly the promise of a sort of a fantasy drama, there weren't that many of those in the 1980s. You know, I mean, or they didn't seem to come over that often. So anything that was fantasy or sci-fi related, you know, I'd kind of leap on, and I guess you were the same. So when I read about this, and it just really seemed to be up my street, but I think the promise of this serial, which had sort of quite advanced special effects, was something that was of great interest to me. But certainly, you know, I had a, quite a deal of anticipation. I, I vaguely knew the book it was based on by John Macefield, largely because I think it was just before the series came out, the TV tie-in book was issued, with probably the worst cover in Christendom. And certainly they also reissued the prequel book, The Midnight Folk as well. So you know, there was a lot of anticipation and I remember certainly setting my video recorder, although obviously I was sat in front of the TV at the time, but I remember pressing record and playing the video recorder, sort of quite excited really.
0: Yeah, I'll come back to that video recording in a minute, but I do remember that build-up because it was frequently mentioned in things like John Craven's back pages in the Radio Times and on Blue Peter, Well, I remember. Remember the preview clip, the very first one that they showed was that bit where Kay Harker is flying over kind of cardboard cutouts of, you know, Norman soldiers from history books. I remember thinking, oh, yeah, that looks great. <laughs> and then. I did love it when it was on because that's an interesting thing to look back at, you know, the idea that it's uniformly regarded as a TV classic. I'm not sure what it was like in your house, but the reactions in ours. You know, you're from a similarly sized family and from a similar range of ages. I really liked it. One of us was frightened of it, particularly the opening titles. And another saw it as just a thing about posh children, which to be fair, it kind of is. And, you know, when you've recently watched things like Educating Marmalade and Behind the Bike Sheds, maybe you're not going to take as kind to the genteel adventures of a boy with a magic box and with quite a religious theme as well. But that was it. It was just something that was on. And although there was a repeat in different form in 1986, I think they showed it in three 50-minute omnibus editions, but I remember one of the first reasons we became friends was you still had somehow, on the end of one of your family's videotapes, Episode six from the original broadcast, and we established that we both liked the music and that I could get music off videotape on audio cassette. I mean, how antiquated does that sound? I remember you loaning me that tape and it feeling like this kind of relic to be treasured. What if I damaged it and we could never get hold of it again? That's how it felt in those days. That's just such a weird thing to look back on now. But I wonder, given how easily available that in particular is now, do you still even have that tape?
1: I do. Well, actually, I had all six episodes. I did have all six and perhaps... I kind of carries it across to a second cassette but yeah, I do remember that And I think I, I remember, you know, you and I Certainly had a fascination with the music And and I did, probably a couple of years later Track down the elusive seven-inch single You know, I was quite disappointed When I finally got the seven-inch Because I loved Roger Lim's uh, theme music and, and, and I guess it's one of these things, isn't it? Obviously, it was a piece of music that pre-existed But obviously, uh, Roger Lim did some Radiophonic noodling over it, I guess And I, I was so disappointed Because when I finally got hold of the seven-inch It was just the original sort of orchestra (laughs) And choir recording and no Roger Lim was in earshot. So obviously, what's been great in recent years, and I know you know because you've reviewed it, is the the silver screen reissue or issue actually of the soundtrack, including said theme with lots of Roger Lim. Going back to your original point, I think it was quite interesting, you know, that we did have this sort of shared fascination. And I think we became friends in 86, 87, around that time. So it wasn't that much longer after that original broadcast, you know, you talked about. And I think we had a lot of things in common, but certainly I think one of the things we, we used to do was talk about our sheer fascination of the box of delights. And certainly, obviously, we sort of poked some gentle fun at certain aspects of it as well, wouldn't we?
0: We certainly would. Things like Foxy Face Charles and Chubby Joe, who we've always been quite obsessed <laughs> with. The interlude about how to make a posset as well, which took a bizarre turn a couple of years ago when I went on a date with somebody who revealed she was obsessed with the box of delights. And as a joke, I said, did you ever try a posset? And she said, yes, I got my mum to make one when it was first on and it tasted like some kind of horrible endless <laughs> liquid biscuit. I thought well I was right there to try a posset then. I must
1: admit I, I was vaguely entranced with the idea of making a posset and obviously as you say, there was that interlude where it was a, quite a detailed you know forerunner to Saturday kitchen I think with this <laughs> this sort of you know, spending 15 minutes of a 25 minute episode talking about how to make a posset and then 5 minutes of that were the maid carrying it up the staircase. So I mean sending the it was, it was a standout moment for me. I, I think that sort of added to the charm of it. I mean, I think as a having read the book, and a bit like having read The Midnight Folk, structurally it is kind of all over the place. You know, obviously, John Macefield, as you understand it, was more known as a poet. That would bear out the structure of both of those books. And I think, was it Alan Seymour who adapted it for, for screen? I think he did a, a fairly good job of bringing it together in some kind of structure. But having watched it in more recent years, the structure. Structure's a bit of a problem for me now. When I rewatched it, I realized that the first couple of episodes, I really I enjoy those more because I think they really evoked Christmas and the build up to Christmas, and there's that real sort of magic and wonder about it. And I think possibly that sort of episodes three, four, and five it seems to flounder a little bit. They have the moments, but you know, and I, I think that's probably down to the, the source material, to be honest with you. There's lots of fantastic imagery in there and ideas, but as a cohesive fluent story story. I felt it was a bit difficult.
0: Yeah, there's a bit that's always bothered me. It was actually in episode two, but even at the time, I thought this was just infuriating filler, where he joins Herne the Hunter as a stag in his wild wood. You know, it's just a show-off, the combination of animation and video effects, but it doesn't go anywhere. It's just a long sequence of effects, and it kind of like, it looks like an episode of Puzzle Trail that's got ideas of a bit station.
1: <laughs> I think so, and I think some of those bits were a little bit infuriating for me, and I I think it was only sort of the last episode. It really sort of comes back on track, and I think that that final episode is really powerful in parts. As you say, some of those animated sequences, you know, led by Ian Eames, who later directed another series that you and I are quite fond of, "How to Be Cool," based oh, yes, on Philip Pullman's yeah. book. I think some of those. I saw. I love the ambition of it. You know, obviously, you know I mean, I'm, I mean, my son's twelve, and it's quite possible he might watch it now and think it's a bit slow. I think that possibly some of the effects are a bit lacking, but I think at the time. They were really bold for the BBC and I think that attempts to do something new with that technology you know I will always applaud that and some elements of that work better than others but you know what you can't fault the production for is its its ambition and its scale and that will go through to the performances as well you know we talked about the posh kids and I guess just diversifying slightly I think there is that point of view is if, if you've got a lot of children's programming which is sort of more socially realistic whether it's Grange Hill or even the beloved Murphy's mob then you know perhaps for some tastes the box of delights is probably you know a little bit too much and I think if you then got a load of posh kids who are acting like spoiled brats then you know it might be difficult for some people to connect to that but you know I suppose on, on the flip side of that I'd say that I think the, the performances of the children and the younger actors are really really good
0: yeah yes they're better than some of the adults actually
1: I think they quite are actually I remember I, <laughs> I, I think I once remarked to you in Jim Sangster so, and I'm sure a number of listeners as we'll know of Jim is certainly who's a friend of ours and has been a sort of a writer of a number of TV and film books I remember we were having a conversation one time and I remarked that I thought Patrick Troughton was a really good actor which caused much hilarity because it was based solely on the Box of Delights I still think he was really good in the Box of Delights I think uh, Robert Stevens as Alvin Brown was absolutely amazing I just think it's such an idiosyncratic performance I don't think anybody else could have played it anywhere as good they certainly wouldn't have played it that way And maybe at some point it's Hammy, but he really sells the villain element of Abner Brown. I, I just think, even though, you know, I was sort of, I think I was uh, I was 11 at the time, I still was a little bit scared of That's probably one of his strengths, actually. I think there is that kind of, alongside the otherworldness of the Box of Delights, I think it was quite good at conveying the terror of the situation that Kay Harker found himself in. That sense of unease throughout was really well done.
0: Well, I think that's reflected in one of the things that has always really stayed with me about, because I mentioned the opening titles before, which is, I mean, when you watch it now, it's obvious it is still photographs of some of the cast sort of shimmering on and off in different ways. But when Robert Stevens's face appears... As a flash of lightning across it without a lightning sound. I find that really sinister. And I think that compliments his performance in it so well. It just signifies how good he is at playing because that cliffhanger to episode two where he's talking to Rat about what he'll do to that boy without actually issuing any direct threat just the, the idea that he will have his, it's not even vengeance because nothing's been done yet but the threat is so palpable it's actually quite frightening really.
1: I think there's a lot of that there when he consults is it the head? I think it's just called head isn't it from memory I And then, obviously, he kind of turns it upside down because he's quite displeased with what Head's telling him. I think some of that stuff's quite unsettling as well. Going back to terror as well, and this is a slightly different thing, the scenes episode 6, a spoiler alert, listeners, is when, um, (laughs) (laughs) when Abner Brown, when he's drowning, the way it's filmed and performed, it's so realistic. I found that quite unsettling as well.
0: Those serials around, and even things like Grange Hill when they had bleak moments. The BBC did that frighteningness for children so well without overstepping the mark they were really good at making something look alarming and upsetting when it was supposed to be. This did that really well, I think. I mean, you know, there are sillier bits of it, but like you say, that's the ambition. It tries to get everything into those six episodes. And I will say, a couple of years ago, I saw a compilation of all six episodes in the cinema on the big screen, so it ran to just under three hours. And it didn't feel like it dragged at any point because there was always something different happening.
1: I think that that's reflected, I mean, I, I made a comment before to say, I think Structurally It's kind of a bit All over the place And in one sense As a narrative You could argue That's a weakness But at the same time You know I acknowledge the fact That the sheer amount Of ideas That John Macefield Got into, into the novel And and certainly From memory There's even more Than was conveyed In the TV series So certainly Alan Seymour As the adapter Has a lot of decisions To make around What to include And what not to include I can understand Why they picked this book To, to televise Because I think The BBC As you say Whether they have had, you know, a million pounds to make a series or one pound, they wouldn't shirk away from the sort of the, the ambition, would they? They'd always give it a go and I think they did with this. I would say the series is more successful than it's unsuccessful in terms of what it does and what it tries to do. I mean, I think one of the things that still resonates for me is Roger Lim's excellent score. I think there's, there's one particular bit and I was delighted when I got finally got the CD soundtrack release. I think it's episode six from memory when Abner Brown is conjuring up all the different sort of creatures to stop Christmas from happening and Kay's observing this. And when the final creature is summoned up, there's just a little sort of bit of tinkly music that Roger Lim puts in, which I just just even now sends chills down the spine. I think Roger Lim did a fantastic job on that soundtrack.
0: He really did. And that's why I wanted to come back to the single because you mentioned being disappointed by it because it was lifted directly from, and I later spent a long time tracking down this album because once you had the single, there was a pointer to what this was. Yeah. <laughs> Christmas music from Guildford Cathedral I think from 1966, it was on the M.I. by the Pro Arte Orchestra, yeah. conducted by Barry Rose doing the Carol Symphony by Healy Hutchinson. And it was taken directly from that and it sounds very different in that context of the whole piece. It's a lot more melancholy. The interesting thing about that I later found out was that wasn't just plucked out of the record library for the Box of lights. it was used in, I mean I found it in a play school in 1970 the Christmas Eve edition, it had come companies the round window film. I believe other people have found it being used in other children's BBC things between then and 1984. So it's something that somebody was keen to get in there somewhere. But there's this kind of idea that Roger Lynn basically just played a couple of synth notes on top of it. But no, when you compare that available soundtrack recording of the theme music to the original, he's manipulated it so much and so subtly to give it a different flavour. Elements of it are louder, elements are quieter. I think that makes all the difference. It wasn't just he pressed the key <laughs> over the top to go wah, wah, wah. No, it was really, really cleverly manipulated.
1: I think you're right. Obviously, if you compare the single version to the TV version, you know, you sort of think, oh, it's a bit dull compared to the TV version. So obviously, he obviously did other elements of editing rather than just doing the odd overdub. You know, and I think it still remains a really powerful and evocative theme tune. And as you say, and you mentioned it before, that title sequence, you know, you only have to look at Twitter this time of year to see how many people reference that title sequence as being lodged in their memory.
0: Just to go back to 1986 for a second, it's interesting that at at that point, I mean, obviously it was repeated that Christmas, but it already felt like well, not last year's thing, two years ago's <laughs> thing, to the extent that, that was around the time Every Loser Wins by Nick Berry came out and when he was interviewed in Smash Hits, obviously because he wasn't a pop star, he was the bloke from EastEnders, there was very little to ask him about, so he mentioned the Box of Delights in that, and he kind of, not him, but Smash Hits sort of overplayed his appearance as one of the Pirate Rats And it was long enough ago, because I read that before the repeats came on, for me to think in my head that it was a bigger role than it actually was, because they kind of just appear almost passing through one scene, singing about Grog or something.
1: (laughs) I think that's the other thing as well. Structurally, there there were all these interludes, and these are more prominent in the book, in terms of the book. It's quite clear that Kay's dreamed the whole, all the events of the book whilst on a train journey. And I think, obviously, you know, especially in this day and age, that's seen as quite a sophisticated ending. I think probably the BBC version's a little bit cleverer because at least they bring in an element of doubt as to whether it was a dream I think that's something the TV show did a little bit better just to say yeah it was all a dream but perhaps it wasn't
0: and it wasn't quite all a dream but it was just one series intended to be shown well it was shown twice but probably to be shown once like a lot of them were because as we'll come back to there were quite a few of them in the years preceding it and quite a few in the years after in fact there was one that Children agree Green now was on while those repeats were going on what I can't work out out is when it started to become more sort of fondly regarded, regarded as a classic, because there was that whole stretch where now I've looked into this. Apparently there was a two-part video release in 1989, which I think was when BBC videos, there were some ones that were around 10 quid, but most of them were 20 pounds. So you're already looking at £40 in 1989 for the box of delights. I mean, I remember that was the year that Watch with Mother the Next Generation came out, which you know had me written all over it, the Herbs, Mary, Mungo and Midge, Barnaby. I remember thinking, that's too expensive to ask for for Christmas. And it was only about 1993, when actually, I think I was with you in the the HMV that used to be in Liverpool, that shared half of its floor space with Burger King. (laughs) And it was now seven ninety nine. I was like, oh, I can afford that now. I've actually got enough money to buy it. But I don't think there would have been many takers in 1989 for that. And I think it was just some kind of maybe an educational release more than anything, like a limited release. Because I remember very, very faintly in Liverpool Central Library, in the section with subtitled videos, they had a copy of that with burnt-in subtitles. Because we used to go there quite a lot to plan creative things and so on, because it used to be open to quite late on in the evening. And they had these lovely desks in the main shelving area. How do we loan that from the library? (laughs) Because we're obviously not entitled to use that section. That's the other thing. I don't know if we ever worked that out. Yeah, I mean,
1: you know, and I think one of my memories there, when you were talking about that, is that I do remember us seeing that video there for the first time and thinking, wow, you know, it's out, it's available on video. And and it's weird, because obviously, as I said before, I'd recorded the whole thing anyway, so I had it. But I think it's that kind of thing you know, when you, when you're a teenager and you have interest whether it's music, film, or TV, and you like to own things like official things, it was that kind of wow. It's it's back. It's back out. You can own that, and you know I think that's kind of what appealed. And and as you said, there was obviously a, a more commercial two volume release later on, if memory serves me correctly, because I bought that one. And then obviously, lastly, there was the DVD.
0: Well, what I can't work out is when this classic status started to be conferred on it, I can't work out what the sea change was, when it went from being, say, an upgraded codename Icarus to something more significant. It's an
1: interesting point you make there, because I think it was regarded with some fondness for a long time, but there was a sea change, as you say. And I would actually say, it's only more recently. I think it's probably the advent of social media, possibly, because... You know, it came out on DVD, and I remember I, I was really excited. It, you know, it was coming out again on DVD. There were some extras on there as well, like the B, the, the Blue of footage you mentioned. You know, but it was still kind of released to sort of muted reception. In fact,
0: wasn't it deleted once and then reissued later? Which indicated it didn't sell that well.
1: That's correct, yeah, because I, I do remember that the version I bought did come off the books and then it was reissued, and I, I understand still is available today. I would actually put it down to sort of social media in the past 10 years or so when people are able to contribute more to these conversations. You know, because I think that, for example, one of my favourite books, which again should have been one of these BBC Christmas adaptations in the 1980s, is, is a book called The Dark is Rising by Susan Cooper. And that was part of a, of a five-book sequence called The Dark is Rising. And obviously, I always knew that was a fondly known book, but in more recent years, it's kind of really taken off. And the nature writer Robert McFarlane has, has set up The Dark is Rising sessions where people kind of read the book in real time from the book's starting date of the 20th of December through to the new year. You know, The reputation of that book and that series has really ramped up through social media and people connecting. And I think the same is, I would say the same is true of The Box of Delights. I think I would put it down to the sea change being social media and people talking about it.
0: I think as well, mentioning reading the book is a good moment to bring in, because i the more I think about it, the more staggering I find it, that this one programme has had such an effect on both of our lives jointly in so many weird ways small ways and one of them was as you say you had the tie-in paperback and I didn't and that started our obsession with tracking down all these TV tie-in paperbacks which there are hundreds of for all kinds of all forgotten serials and we used to spend our Saturdays in our teenage years going round places like Henry Bone Books next to Lime Street Station in Liverpool, Chapter One Books, which I'll come back to in a minute. What was the place on Brentshaw Street called?
1: Read to Liverpool.
0: Read to Liverpool, where, bless him, the guy who worked there didn't know that some of these were really rare. And he would just have things routinely listed at 50p or a pound. Like, I got all of the Quatermass script books from there for three pounds, which <laughs> it seems staggering to me now, but we would spend I mean we, I remember us pulling things off the shelves that we didn't know what they were and thinking what's that what's raven what's shadows and it was it was this whole new exciting world of this stuff that you know was only a couple of years old but seemed impossibly remote to us, and then of course, there was chapter one books which <laughs> It's been mentioned on here before. I mean, most recently with our mutual friend Will McLean, when we were talking about the Pan Book of Horrors and how the guy who ran Chapter One knew his prices. You know, forget getting things like the Time Slip novel from there. It would be priced out of your your pocket money range. Tomorrow People books as well, particularly the last one always went for a fortune. But that was... There was a big shelf in there where they put tie-in paperbacks. I remember getting all the Man From U.N.C.L.E. books from there. And as you've mentioned when you've been on Looks and Familiar previously, there's a lot of copies of You Can Do The Cube for some reason. But there was also... I just want to get this out of the way because it's haunted me to this day. It had everything culty you could imagine in that shop. It was a great shop if you were an obsessive collector like we were. It was particularly a great shop, it seemed, for people who didn't smell very good. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not saying we were immune to that. But there's also a section in there of second-hand adult magazines. Even at that age, I thought, hey... Who would want second-hand ones? <laughs> Literally, you don't know where they've been. But B, thinking you can see naked women anywhere. I was a man from Uncle Novel, <laughs> and it had a little car. But I saying, no one under eighteen past this point. And i was like, never going past there. Don't you worry. Isn't it odd to think now that nobody batted an eyelid at that at the time? And it would seem, I don't think the reasons it was there were very wrong. I don't think there was anything untoward about it, but it would be seen as very wrong now, particularly in the shop with a lot of teenagers in.
1: Well, I suppose it was because it was very much, you know, at least in that time, Liverpool, you know, one of a kind. They were obviously trying to do different things in that shop. Well, I i remember, you're quite right. You're obviously, we were going there sort of 14, 15, whatever, you know, quite innocent sort of intentions. But you say some adults would be uncomfortable that. I, I remember I bought the Alternative 3 tie-in book there for quite a cheap price. So obviously you had not heard of Alternative 3. I guess not many people have.
0: Yeah, but we should just say that was a very strange ITV hoax about some kind of late Cold War thing where were they building a defence base on the moon or something? It was, a, it was a pretend kind of world in action documentary. But it was, But yeah, somebody yeah. did the tie-in novel of it, which... <laughs> With a dreadful cover as well. It was a very,
1: but I think that's what these books had in common. Yeah, I mean, the Box of Delights. One, you know, when you think of the imagery in the Box of Delights, I know we moved on slightly, but just to come back to this one, you had all that animation that led by you know Ian Eames and his team as well, and just this, this sheer sort of design that went into that show. You had this cover whereby the actual sort of the full frame of the cover of the book was like a snowscape, and in the bottom left-hand corner, you had two tiny figures, which were Kay Harker and his friend Peter, and then kind of sort of overlaid in the right-hand bottom corner, with a big thick edging on it, is a photo of Patrick Troughton showing Kay Harker, you know, something or other, and it was just such a lazy cover. You just think, it tells you nothing about this TV show, and alternative things you say, from memory, I've got in the, in the garage somewhere, it like a bold blue cover and you've got the number three in big like you know filling most of the book cover these, these books that had terrible covers
0: it looked like it's like a supermarket offer that one that's my memory it of it <laughs> it was you know
1: I think got a lot of those tie-in books were just lazily done you know and didn't really convey you yeah, know, what was inside them.
0: Mentioning the time Books brings me on to, we should really run through, because there was a run of about 13 years where they would do one of these serials, not always fantasy-based, but mostly each year in the run-up to Christmas. ITV tried to do some a couple of times, didn't really work. It started with The Phoenix in the Carpet in 1976, and I think that cover with them with The Puppet Phoenix stayed on the cover of that book forever, and it's probably still on there now. Then there was King Cinder with Peter Duncan, which is a kind of speedway racing thing with criminals involved somehow. I've never really finished all of it. all I know of that is the book of it. I've never finished it. Then in nineteen seventy eight you get the Moon Stallion, which Richard Little had talked about when he was on Lux and Familiar, which is a really Really strange serial, really kind of folk horror supernatural thing, which I don't think is that suitable for kids. Really,
1: no, I think you're right. I mean, I have that book as well, and I think more recently it has become available in some form. I mean, certainly the BBC Store had it available for a time. You know, and I think I would agree. I think, it and obviously, the you know, the Scar for Life guys really cover this in in their in their books. When you think about a lot of the, the products that passed as child-friendly in the 1970s and the 1980s, it beggars belief. You know, some of the things that, even if it wasn't gratuitous, and it hardly ever was, you know, I think just sort of the ideas and the sense of unease that a lot of these series conveyed were quite haunting, I would say, with kids for quite a long time. And, you know, I, I think The Moon Stallion is one really good example of that, whereby it does touch into those sort of, you know, those folk horror traditions, those sort of pagan traditions of this country, and the slight sort of mystical elements to it as well. You know, I think that's a really powerful series and probably unfairly overlooked to some degree. But I would agree, I, I was found that, you know, a really, really powerful concept, The Moon Stallion.
0: And as well, I mean, just to cover briefly, I've always thought it's very odd that immediately after the Box of Delights, you start to get swearing in children's BBC dramas. In things like the December Rose, the Cuckoo Sister, Aliens and the Family You're Going to Come Back To, there's actual bad language in them. And I don't understand what anyone was trying to do with it, who was trying to do it, and why. I can't figure that out. But there was no bad language in The Enchanted Castle in 1979, (laughs) which is another Enesbit story, which is Basically, it's not one of the better Nesbit stories, but it's just about some post children and enchanted castle. But it's one of the things I get asked about the most because it looks unfamiliar. People saying, do you know what the show was where there were kind of cardboard masks called the Ugly Wugglies? Well, in 1980, we get a really weird thing when it was actually, I believe, an elderly lady who'd been watching all of these serials and loved the Moon Stallion, wrote in to say, why don't you do A Little Silver Trumper by L.T. Mead?" which I think could be... Out of print for decades by that point. And then that year you also get... They tried to do the weird kind of incarnation of a ghost story for christmas for children with the bells of astakote and Ghost in the water which didn't really last very long i think they are really weird plays 1981 it's that very strange thing name icarus about a cold war child genius who sent to a special school where he is devising a new weapon or something that never really really connected with me because it was it was about school <laughs> <laughs> was, I just didn't have any, any interest in it and then 1982 you get Breakpoint which is about two tennis prodigies which that's even less appealing in 1983 probably because they were saving all the money spent on the boxes and lights there's repeated Carrie's War from I think 1976 which I don't like saying it this way but it's kind of what in those days I'm using the terminology from those days it would have been called a girl's book it was, I, understand you know, what I, I, I don't agree with, you know, because I grew up in a mainly female household. I read Misty as much as I read any boys comics, you know, that sort of thing. I didn't believe in that sort of thing at all, but in those days... Adults tried to delegate between boys' books and girls' books, and Carrie's War was definitely a girls' book, and I never took to it, because it's kind of a prim and proper thing about, I think it's wartime, isn't it? And they're in an old house, and there's somebody who keeps saying, they're either telling them to walk on the drugger or not to walk on the drugger. I can't remember that I was that interested. 1984, you got the Box of Delights, and obviously, because they spent so much on it, they do nothing in 1985. But also, that's the year... They completely changed the children's BBC department, cancelled a lot of long-running shows, took a new direction with the dramas and things like, I think the first new one was Running Scared, which is about a girl on the run from East End Heavies with a Kate Bush soundtrack, which yeah. would not have happened a couple of years before that. And then in 1986, you get The Children of Green Now, which is another period piece, but it's not like the older ones. It's a ghost story, but... They're not really ghosts, are they? It's like a meeting of two times. And it's just about this boy making friends with these Charles II era children and... There's not even really any menace to it. It's all about the atmosphere. It's a very, very different piece to anything that came before it, including the Box of Delights, really.
1: It's funny, you know, because I remember at the time, you know, obviously this was around the time, you know, you and I sort of started to get to know each other or anything. You were always like a big proponent of how good the Children of Green though was. And I sort of felt in some ways it was kind of lacking compared to the kind of the bombast of the Box of Delights, but... It's funny how obviously time changes views. And I actually think The Children of Green Know is a more successful serial, possibly, than A Box of Delights is. Possibly, you could argue, The Children of Green Know is less ambitious. But I think it probably benefits from a more cohesive narrative structure that's been taken from the book. I think because it's got a slower pace, you get that sense of character more. Obviously, you get to know Tolly a bit more. And I think, particularly when you could have the scenes with St. Christopher, you know, I think they're very powerful sequences. But I think the emotion of those sequences, what it means for, for Tolly, really comes out loud. So I, I would agree with what you say there. It's a much quieter, smaller piece compared to the Box of Delights. But I think the real sort of emotion comes through. Well,
0: particularly with, unfortunately, I can't remember the name of who played her. But his, I think she's his great, great aunt who he goes to stay with. And, you know, normally in children's TV before that, those kind of figures have been imposing, out of touch, sinister even. But she's clearly still a young girl at heart, insists that he calls her granny and loves playing games. It's like she's having a second childhood through this young relative that she's never met before. And that's such a big difference well. I think it's unfair that this show doesn't get remembered as well as The Box of Delights, because in its own way, I'm going to say this, it's every bit as good. It is just good in a different way.
1: That's a really good way to put it, in Because obviously I said before, I'd, you know, if I had to pick the two, it almost sounds like heresy when we come together to talk about the box of delights. <laughs> but I think, and obviously I'm conscious that I'm looking at this, you know, as an adult rather than a child. But I think, you know, if I had to pick between the two, I'd probably pick the Children of Green, though, because I think it's probably more successful in what it sets out to do, and I think it has a, a better narrative structure. But I still can't fault the ambition of the Box of Delights and you know I remain very fond of that series because it did mean a lot to me at the time. I I really enjoyed it and I watched it quite a lot, you know. And I think it's just funny looking at it from a different perspective. But I would agree, I think Children of Green, though, is really underappreciated to some degree and doesn't have that cultural cachet that the Box of Delights does. Just as an aside, about about 20 years ago, I got on some, uh, like on the the writing scheme in London. And as part of that, some of the participants, including myself, were able to sort of have our script showcased. And one of the writers of one of the scripts being showcased was uh, Alec Christie, who actually played Tolly now I did have a few conversations with him and he was a really nice guy but part of me was thinking oh I really want to ask him about the Children of Green now but I just felt no I can't do it I can't do it but when he when walk into the room and you think it's Tolly
0: well, you showed more restrained decorum than a long, long time ago. I bumped into one of the stars of our next serial, who's Claire Wilkie, who was in Aliens of the Family and then El Dorado and then disappeared for a while. Obviously came back in EastEnders and did a lot of things after that. In those wilderness years, I realised I was sat next to her on the train once. And I said, excuse me, this is going to sound really weird, but you're Claire Wilkie from Aliens of the Family. And she actually did that thing where... I've never seen people do it in real life where they're just absolutely open mouths, like their mouth has just dropped about eight inches. And she was lovely, but I think she was astonished to be recognised. <laughs> Aliens in the Family, very weird programme because it was very much sci-fi themed, but it tried to be up to the minute. There's a joke about Sunita in it, which... That's really dated. The main character, Bond, is an alien looking for sister, Salita, who will be hidden in an electrical device. He goes up to what in those days was called a ghetto blaster, a horrible name, and I thought it was a horrible name at the time, but asks Salita, and the breakdancer says, nah, mate, it's Kim (laughs) Wilde. And there's another bit where he's trying to choose an appearance to change yourself to being conspicuous on Earth. And he's shown the images of, like, Morton Harkett, Daly Thompson, and <laughs> Philip Schofield, who obviously <laughs> was introducing it. But it's a really strange serial, because it is, as much about him, it's about these two sets of kids that come together because their divorced parents get together with each other. And they hate each other, but they find common ground when they... Because they are all outsiders, they're misfits who don't like each other because of the misfits, So then they meet and shelter this alien and come together because of that. And the other very odd thing is the number of people I've met who use the phrase weirdigans, who don't know where it comes from, and it's the evil aliens and aliens in the family led by Granville Saxton, who was Mr. Fowl in Harbwick House, <laughs> which, you know, this all, all ties together in a big 1987 way, but that word seems to have passed into popular culture and lost its origins along the way.
1: Again, I, I think that's probably quite an underrated series, and, and I think it was one of those series that, as you say, kind of married that kind of social realism, and that, I guess kitchen sink drama with that sci-fi element, and I seem to record it, did it quite well. I mean, obviously, you know, Aliens in the Family is kind of a play on words, because it obviously just doesn't talk about the main character who's an alien, but obviously, as you say, talks about how the, these two children sort of consider each other, but I I thought it was really well done. I thought it was quite engaging, that series. I thought actually it looked really good as well. I think particularly the, the effects in that series were, f- were pretty polished for a show of that age and actually a show of that budget.
0: Well, we're coming up to something which needs to stay out of public awareness because in 1988 they did do The Watch House, which was a great Robert Westall adaptation, which is really the last of these, which is about a ghost of a pirate called Scobie Haig, isn't it? And it's done really menacingly I think it was only three episodes, this one, wasn't it? Yeah, but Funnily it enough, Clayton Hickman was talking about it on Twitter the other day, and I was so desperate to say, we're going to be talking about it and the looks of a familiar Christmas special, but I thought I wouldn't spoiler it. That was really good. And over on ITV, you got How To Be Cool, which you have already mentioned, The Snow Spider, which went out on a really weird slot on a Saturday. It was about four o'clock, wasn't it? And had that really dull theme music that was somehow released as a single. I don't understand that. But the BBC, I think it was on Christmas Eve, Billy's Christmas Angels. Now, are you going to explain this or shall I?
1: I think Billy's Christmas Angels almost defies description. And I say that to somebody (laughs) who actually has it on a VHS somewhere.
0: I know you do, Um, (laughs) yes. yes. But
1: what I seem to remember is, well, tell you what, All I can remember of it is it had John Shackley from the tripods in it. It also had the mint juleps in there. I think they were just the angels, weren't they? And they were sort of singing at various periods throughout the piece.
0: Well, the mint juleps, I'll just quickly explain, were they were kind of the next big thing. For a few years in the 80s where they're an cappella band who did things like dancing in the dark and every kind of people i think they were sort of like they were like the bell stars they were like what would come to be known as an indie band but who suddenly found themselves pushed the mainstream and didn't really know what to do And used to turn up on things not looking like they quite knew what they were doing there which probably didn't help their chances but this was really the most high profile thing they did and nobody saw it because it, <laughs> of its weird time slot and the fact it wasn't very good i I mean, the plot as I remember it was Billy's a boy whose older brother, played by John Shackley, takes his guitar to a pawn shop to get some money for Christmas and Billy goes to get it back. And there's something involving Nabil Shaban at some point as well, who obviously was in nearly everything around then. That's all I remember about it in the Mint Julep singing, in the, not the real street, a set of a street.
1: It's interesting what you say about them into your left, because I think you're right, you know, they a really, really good vocal harmony group, weren't they? You know, they, they had an they had amazing voices, and, you know, they were on stiff records. They worked with producers like Trevor Horn and Stock Aitken Waterman, and they just never kind of broke through, did they? You know, and, and I think you're right, Tim, this is probably one of those things where it was their main area of exposure. It was a real, really, I mean, you've kind of elucidated this in what you've said there, it was a real... Curio, wasn't it? It wasn't one thing or the other, was it? Again, you know, there was this sense of there was some kind of angelic sort of influence on Billy's quest. But I don't think it was as done as well as, say, for example, Aliens in the Family, you know, because I think they got that mix really, really well. And I think Billy's Christmas Angels didn't quite get the mix that well. And then with the musical interludes, I mean, I think I remember watching when I was watching at the time, I didn't quite know what to make of it. I still don't, to be honest, Tim. And that's like 30 <laughs> no, odd years old. I still off.
0: can't figure out what it is or who it's <laughs> for. Then, unfortunately, we come on to 1989, which is when all of this ends, because there's a distinct odour on the horizon of kids jumping up and pausing and then going back down while the words Biker Grove appear behind them. Because that block book, that slot from September to December, from there on in, there was no more room for these serials. I think that was a bit of a shame, really. Especially if you weren't a big fan of Winston and (laughs) Gill.
1: I think it was, Tim. And I think, you know, if I I sort of look back on sort of my formative years and certainly the sort of the late 70s and, and throughout the 80s, I think there were some, and we've talked about some of them today, obviously, and there are obviously other non christmasy ones that we probably talked about elsewhere and other people covered. There was just such a range of sort of imaginative and ambitious serials aimed at kids that you sort of almost wish had a wider audience because they did, on many occasions, kind of transcend that audience and families and adults would have enjoyed them also. And I think it's a great shame that they've not gone. And, you know, we could go into a big sort of rant here around how children's TV to some extent has been marginalised, even though, obviously, you could see on the BBC, children's BBC or CBBC as it is, obviously has a channel with lots of great products on there, but obviously it's tucked away on its own channel and doesn't get the exposure on BBC One. And and again, obviously you mentioned the the tweet that Clayton Hickman made about the watch house and then obviously Richard Morrison made some comments around the changes to children's television or children's BBC in over the past twenty years. And and he would know, given his background, having worked in that department, but certainly I just think it's a real shame that, you know, children's TV and children's drama has kind of been marginalised to a channel just for kids rather than being on in the afternoons and evenings where actually those kids are likely to sit down with the parents and the wider family, you know, and sort of have those forms of experiences of, of enjoying these pieces of drama collectively, you know, rather than just being targeted at children with a laser focus. You know, and I think it's a real shame, because there's nothing really for that. There's a real gap now. You've got TV shows for sort of younger kids, maybe to sort of 12, and then you've got a big sort of gap in the market until sort of 18 or adulthood, and I might be wrong, but there doesn't seem to be a lot of those shows now that sort of cater for that that transition period.
0: I think you're right. But I also I want to end this on a positive note, which is that it really is amazing. And this hadn't occurred to me until recently how much these serials, but the Box of Delights in particular, indirectly impacted both of our future careers, because I think whereas I went backwards With all these weird books that, you know, we discovered that we didn't know what they were, I started to think things like, well, what was Mandog? What was the context time slip was made in? And why is some of it in black and white? Children of the Stones, which we only knew as a book, I became quite obsessed with. And then years later, I ended up writing a documentary about it and the sleeve notes for the DVD. But they didn't stop making these serials completely. Whereas I went backwards, you went forward and you sort of followed all of these. And there was one up-and-coming writer that did a few children's BBC series in the early 90s that you were really impressed by. And when you were first starting to think about scriptwriting yourself, I remember you saying, this guy seems quite new and I like his ideas. I might write to him and see if he's got any pointers. Not how to break into writing, which is the, the thing people always ask, how do I get an X and Y? It's just work. you just got to work at it. But you wrote to him asking about his approach to doing things, and his name was?
1: Russell T Davies.
0: That still blows my mind to this day, that I believed you were the first person ever to write to him.
1: Well, that's what he said. And certainly, I you know, I think on those letters, I was sort of espousing how much I liked Dark Season, and sort of mentioned that I thought you know, Kate Winslet was a real actress to watch. And he kind of wrote back, to wrote another letter to me a few years later when he was moving, and he sort of sort of do some correspondence, and he said, "You said this in your letter, and I agree with it." But look at it now; it's, it's So that was quite quite interesting as well. But yeah, but yeah, and I think you know I almost did get something on children's BBC a few years back. But yeah, I think it does influence those careers, and I think certainly you know the imagination that came out of those shows in in the seventies and eighties that I watch have sort of really informed my interests and in my writing and stuff. Just in the same way that Doctor Who has inspired so many people in their careers as well. So I do think it's a shame that children's TV has changed and the BBC aside, there isn't that kind of attention or focus to to doing that kind, that type of drama. There's lots of children's TV for younger children, but I think there's that particular gap that that kind of show that sort of straddles being a child and being an adult, which things like Children of Green Know did so well, Aliens in the Family, to a point, Box of Delight as well. You know, those kind of shows that really sort of married, you know, those two age groups and, and they did it with such sort of verve and aplomb. I just think it's a shame that that kind of market isn't really catered for these days.
0: Well, I'm just going to ask one thing as a closing question. If you had the Box of Delight, would you go small or go swift? <laughs>
1: Well, just before I answer that, I also remember, I'm sure, and I might be imagining this, but I'm sure, I have to say, at the time it was broadcast, there was an item on Saturday, Superstore, the cast, or some of the cast members were on it, and the competition that week was to win. The box of delights pro. No, really. Because I remember I, I was I wrote you know I did a postcard and sent it in and was hoping it would be picked out the following week and it wasn't. But yes, yeah, so somewhere someone out there has got the box <laughs> of delights pro. It's probably been used as an ashtray or something, but I hope not. But, <laughs> but in terms of your your original question, Tim, I think I would have to go swift.
0: And that's your way of getting out of it, Stephen. Happy Christmas. And to you, Tim. single released by BBC Records and Tapes from The Themes of the Six Wives of Henry VIII to Awesome Doom by Ed The Duck. more details at timwervington.org